Hey, Mike here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Dark Poutine early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello and welcome to Dark Poutine. I'm Mike Brown, your creator and host. With me this week is my wife, Carol. Say hello, Carol. Why, hello there. Hello. How are things? Good. How are you? I'm good. <laughs> the views, information, and opinions expressed during the Dark Poutine podcast are solely those of the producer and do not necessarily represent those of Curious Cast, its affiliate, Global News, nor their parent company, Chorus Entertainment. Dark Poutine is not for the faint of heart or squeamish. Our content is often intense, and some listeners may find it disturbing. We're not experts on the topics we present, nor are we journalists. We're two ordinary Canadian schmoes chatting about crime and the dark side of history. Let's get to it. Put on your toque, grab yourself a double-double and an Nanaimo bar. It's time to scarf down some dark poutine. Bon appétit! Listeners who feel they are in crisis can contact the Crisis Text Line in Canada by texting HOME to 686868. In the US or UK, text 741741. The service will match you with a volunteer counsellor who is supervised by a licensed, trained mental health professional. Crisis Text Line is free 24-7 support for those in crisis. For more information, go to crisistextline.ca in Canada or crisistextline.org globally. This week's killer... A refugee from Malawi murdered four people he was connected to in Vancouver's suburbs as part of an elaborate scheme to steal their identities, set up false bank accounts, insurance claims, and run up credit in his victims' names. According to a 2010 CBC News article, this man murdered his business partner Arden Samuel, his stepdaughter Rita Jung, his girlfriend Suyin Ma, and his wife Margaret Kembo, whose body has never been found. You are listening to episode 153, The Life and Crimes of Serial Killer Charles Eli Cambo. And so when you hear the words serial killer, Carol, which murderers come to mind? Paul Bernardo? How about Russell Williams or Bruce MacArthur? Yeah, I've heard of them. How about Robert Picton? Of course. Uh, he's rather yucky and a local person. And totally local. And we were actually on that site there. Yeah. Uh, it was right behind the Home Depot that we used to shop yeah. at. Mm, checking out the scene. All of those are terrifying monsters whose stories we have yet to cover. And we're getting to them, I promise. Probably even picked in. But not yet. 
not in this episode. Have you ever heard the name Charles Eli Kembo before? No, never. Interesting, right? Yeah. You are not alone. Not many people have heard of Charles Kembo. Kembo's horrific crimes, all murders for money, took place locally, as you mentioned. One would assume that the average BC resident has heard of him too, but no. Even me, the guy who with an even me, the guy with an interest in crime stories, have until I completed the research for this episode, had only a passing awareness of this creep. As Kembo's trial was happening around the same time as Picton's, this psychopath has flown relatively under the radar, overshadowed the murderous pig farmer from Port Coquitlam. That's so weird. Yeah. How did you find him? I knew about him then, but I wasn't as interested in the story because of the size of the Picton thing. Yeah. Another contributing factor in the lack of public interest in the case is that all of the involved, the perpetrator and his victims, were people of color and immigrants. Mm. His crimes, however, were no less heinous than the others we have already mentioned. According to the paper, Imagining the Unimaginable, Psychopathy, Uncriminality, and the Body by Julianne DeSanto of York University in Toronto, quote, between 1979 and 2012, Suckwinder Dillon and Charles Kembo were the only non-white convicted serial killers in Canada. So that's quite a span of time mm-hmm. for that to be the case, which right. is really fascinating. Yeah, and also the non-white piece. Yeah, well, that's what I'm saying. Yeah, that's. I just never thought about it. I thought a serial killer is a serial killer. There's even no Wikipedia page for Charles Kembo, which is another rare occurrence for serial killers. Yeah, usually. usually yeah. There's something. Yep. Lots. Nothing for this guy. I was able to piece together the twisted story of Kembo's depraved acts and what happened after using the usual court documents, news articles, and the very brief telling of the case in Dr. Lee Meller's book, Cold North Killers. And Meller's book is a great entry point to a lot of Canadian murder cases. He does like really short couple page intros to a lot of Canadian murderers. So if people are interested in that, it's a really great book. Ooh, where is that book? I want to read it. I look in your library. It's on our Kindle. It's on the Kindles. Okay, perfect. According to Meller, Charles, who later changed his name from Gwaza to Kembo, was born in Malawi to a Presbyterian minister and his wife around the early 1970s or late 1960s. And I'll get into why that is sort of vague. Malawi is a, quote, landlocked country in eastern Africa and is bordered by Tanzania to the north, Zambia to the west, and Mozambique on the continent's east coast. According to RefWorld.com, the UN's Human Rights Watch World Report 1989 on Malawi, quote, the 25 years of life President Hastings' Kamzu Banda's rule in Malawi have been synonymous with torture, extrajudicial killings, detentions without trial, and severely circumscribed civil and political liberties. Despite the gross abuses under Banda's rule, the United States has remained an important ally and has failed to make human rights an integral part of the U.S. policy toward Malawi. Under the Reagan administration's policy of constructive engagement with South Africa, Malawi's close ties to the South African government, ensured it uncritical U.S. support. So interesting how a powerful country so far away can have such an impact on what happens, good or bad, in another country. 
And we're seeing that a lot lately. In simpler terms, Malawi was not a nice place to live at the time. So, Carol, you spent some time in Africa in the 1970s and 80s, specifically Zimbabwe. You've You've mentioned the poverty in the region before that you saw and do you have any any thoughts on this? It's not like shantytown poverty, but it's more like they didn't have many resources. In the spring of 1989, countries including Canada began to welcome scores of refugees from Malawi who sought asylum from their oppressive government. Although the extreme majority of asylum seekers are peaceful and hardworking people, grateful for a chance at a new life, there are rare bad apples among them. Charles Kembo was one of those rare bad apples. He entered Canada in September 1989 as a refugee, part of a UN-sponsored government program. Now, racists demonize immigrants pointing energetically to this tiny minority as a reason to have more stringent immigration laws and close borders. But, again, the instance is exceedingly uncommon. Yeah, please. Of all the people that come here out of need... They're not focusing on getting some kind of insurance scams going. No. Things have changed, though, in the 30 years since Kembo entered Canada regarding the screening of immigrants from Canada.ca. Quote, to protect the health, safety, and security of Canadians, all potential immigrants are carefully screened before they can come to Canada. Anyone applying to live permanently in Canada must provide a police certificate or criminal record check. Fair enough. Their fingerprints, a photo, and or biometrics. Screening makes sure anyone who immigrates to Canada hasn't committed a serious crime, doesn't pose a risk to Canada's security, hasn't violated human or international rights, is in good health, determined by a medical exam, and has a valid passport or travel document. Think that's reasonable? Kembo told the Vancouver Sun reporter Ian Mulgrew that he had run away from home after being expelled from school at 15 years old and was 17 when he came to Canada. But other reports place Charles Kembo's age at least four years older, that he was 21 when he entered Canada. So I did some speculating on the motives for his dishonesty about his age, or if he was even dishonest about it. Kembo might have chosen a later birth date to make himself look more innocent, thus a better candidate for acceptance into the refugee program. Yeah, that sounds like something someone sneaky would do. Kembo got a student loan right away and did spend some at Centennial College in Ontario just after his arrival in Canada, but he dropped out soon after to pursue a darker path. He claimed that two of his brothers died in a car crash back in Malawi, and that had sent him spiraling. He started getting into trouble almost immediately, immersing himself in a life of drugs and petty crime. Amy O'Brien of the CanWest News Service wrote in an August 2005 Times Colonist article that within two years, Kembo was making, quote, false refugee claims under various other names. Throughout the early 1990s, Kembo began defrauding government agencies, including the federal welfare system, using at least 22 different aliases. That is substantial, like 22 different. I never would have thought to do that. No, I don't think many people would. Yeah, that's amazing. (laughs) Just 22 times, let's try. Kembo's first conviction in Canada came in April of 1991 when he was found guilty for theft in Toronto. He was convicted of another theft in July of that same year. A man with so many aliases is hard to keep track of, but it is believed that Kembo moved to Vancouver at some point in 1992. 
I'm always um, leery of someone who's got an alias. Right. Always. Just like, why? Why? Yeah. Well, I mean. I why a, do you need 22? <laughs> I have a birth name and then my parents changed my name legally, but yeah. I was three months old. So I really, it you wasn't had, like I was running from something. You weren't committing some kind of fraud. No. <laughs> but I know, well, my maiden name. So my last name changed. Oh. Technically have an alias. As they call it in the trailer park, boys, your mating name. <laughs> yeah, that too. <laughs> From a 2010 Ian Mulgrew article, quote, Kembo fled Toronto in mid-1992 with two friends, embarking on a small-time crime spree, hitting Winnipeg, Saskatoon, later Edmonton, and finally Vancouver. At each stop, he said they were, quote, living the fast life, partying, doing drugs, having fun, petty crimes, frauds, break and entering, Anything to make money for more drugs, more partying, and not having to face reality. That part I understand, but <laughs> I think the 22 aliases still catch me. Like, you, you can only do so much. So you uh, understand scheming. the petty crimes, frauds, break and enters. If you're doing, if you're like into the drug scene or super into drugs, then that just goes hand in hand lots of times yeah. unless you're independently wealthy. Once he was established in Vancouver, Kembo continued receiving checks through a variety of fraudulent means. Although convicted a number of times for break-enter and theft, fraud, and uttering a forged document in Vancouver, in the mid-1990s, Kembo's scam became more elaborate and sophisticated. He began money laundering and using aliases to create fake corporate entities that he used to run several scams. I kind of like that you use the fake corporate entities for some reason. I'm just like, at least it's corporations and not people, <laughs> which it's not right. But no. it seems like at arm's length at that point, which is also wrong. This is probably why after he was sent up before an immigration tribunal, after he was paroled in 1994 on one of his many sort of nonviolent convictions, it was determined that he should be deported. However, he wasn't convicted of any violent crimes at the time. And Malawi was still a dangerous country to return to, so they granted him a temporary stay of hmm. that. That's very kind on Canada's side. From Lee Meller's Cold North Killers, quote, After this last conviction, Kembo seems to have gone straight, opening a successful financial project management company. <laughs> Sorry. Because he's gone from the being like this petty criminal to suddenly just out of the blue opening a successful financial project management company. Right. What, did he get a life coach? <laughs> Maybe. Well, I mean, apparently he says he went into, quote, rehab and cleaned up his act and took some online courses. So probably the ones that were on the back of a matchbox, really. No matchbox. That's a, oh, or, yeah, you know the one. I know what you mean. According to Ian Mulgrew's April 2010 article in the Vancouver Sun, Kembo said he met his future wife, Margaret Jung, in 1998, noticing her at the Templeton Secondary School playing fields. She lived in his apartment building, and they struck up a friendship. When her mother in Hong Kong died, he offered her money to go home to a funeral. It was just a natural thing, Kembo said. We are still friends, but I guess that was the turning point of our relationship. A couple of days after that, we went on a date. Jung went to Hong Kong and Kembo said she called him from there to say she was pregnant. I don't recall being ready to hear that news, he said with an ingratiating smile, as if to say, you know how it is. We got into a little fight about that. After I spoke with family and friends, I was okay with it, end quote. So here's the thing. Kembo 
was already living common law with another woman. Oh. In the same building. Got it. And had already fathered a child with her. They were very much still together. Margaret Kembo was working in the circulation department at Singtow Newspaper, paying $750 a month in rent and supporting her teenage daughter, Rita Jung. Margaret became pregnant with Mr. Kembo's child, Grant, who was born in April 2000. And Mr. Kembo married Margaret in March of 2002, although they never lived together because Mr. Kembo was living with his common-law wife, Jean-Vieve Camara. Okay, one of those situations. One of those situations. He's juggling a lot here. Yeah, there's a lot going on. So a week after the secret marriage, Kembo bought a convenience store where Margaret was working. So he's doing quite well in his scams. Yeah, if he can afford a convenience store in Lower Mainland? He claimed later that he was making between fifty and $65,000 a month doing nice. these things. But again, he's a liar, so we don't know that's if that's true. the truth. Mm-hmm. Margaret obtained a cell phone in her name for Charles to use and another one for her own use. Kembo had her right where he wanted her and had easy access to all of Margaret's personal information. So what did he do with it? Without Margaret's knowledge, Charles used her identity to set up corporations in her name and used her name in the directorship of a number of different companies. He set up an email account in her name and he claimed to have business connections in Brunei And Margaret was telling friends that she was preparing and making plans to go to Brunei to work for Charles Kembo. Sweet, the king of Brunei. Right, exactly. Lots of money in Brunei. There's so much money. Margaret Kembo was last seen on December 31st, 2002. She told a work companion she was going to meet Charles. Following her disappearance, Mr. Kembo told people various things about Margaret's whereabouts, including that she was at a monastery in Hong Kong or Shanghai or Bangkok or Brunei. Charles also told other people that Margaret had gone to work on a film project for him in Brunei. Oh, wow. She's in a lot of different monasteries, and she's working on a film. She's doing a lot of cool things, apparently, according to him. Very exciting. After her disappearance, Charles continued to use Margaret's name to his benefit in the corporations that he had set up. From court documents, quote, In 2003, the year following Margaret Kembo's disappearance, Charles used her identity for a financial gain amounting to about $220,000, he says, to compensate for Margaret using his money to send to a psychic. What? So she had been sending his money to a psychic, so he was recouping his losses, I guess. He was reimbursing himself. Himself. Gotcha. He collapsed her insurance policy and had the check for its cash surrender value mailed to him. He cashed in Rita Jung's RESP. So the 14-year-old, 15-year-old daughter now has no school plan because he's cashed that in as well, because it's money he says is owed to him. Got it. He claimed false GST refunds for corporations set up in Margaret Kembo's name. He filed false income tax returns and false unemployment insurance applications in Margaret Kembo's name. Wow, he just had his fingers everywhere. He applied for five credit cards over the internet in Margaret's name, running up balances on them as well as on her pre-existing credit cards. In June of 2002, Mr. Kembo arranged for an Alberta's driver's license in Margaret's name to be issued with Jean-Vieve Camara's picture on it. So his common-law wife. Finally, he forged a power of attorney for Margaret Kembo. 
this is amazing. He got all this stuff done. I mean, I know it's all criminal, but it's just for him to kind of come to pull it all together and get all these documents and payments. Yeah. That's kind of amazing. So Jean-Vierre Camara was never charged with anything, just so you know. Mm -hmm. But her name keeps coming up in this. Yeah. She was his common law wife and she eventually becomes the star witness in a trial. Ah, uh, okay. Right? She benefited in some way, I guess, financially. She had to have. There yeah. has to be. Arden Samuel, another immigrant, 38, was Charles Cambo's roommate and best friend in 1996. He struggled maintaining employment and was intermittently on social assistance. He and Charles had a falling out in the year before Grant, Charles's son, was born, but reconciled soon after the boy's birth. As with Margaret, Kembo took advantage of Arden's situation and trust in Charles. From court documents, quote, As early as 1998, Mr. Kembo opened up a mailbox in Arden Samuel's name, which he used for his companies. Because Arden Samuel was of low means and he did not even have a bank account, Charles paid his rent, often sending Jean-Vievre Camara with the cash. Oh my God, this guy. Arden wanted to try his hand at the gift card business. Charles assisted Arden with a business plan for a company called Pacific Pay Card, incorporated by Mr. Cambo, and assisted him in funding it from a company known as Oracle. Mm -hmm. So Cambo is claiming he has contacts inside Oracle, and they will fund Arden's company. There is evidence that Cambo also assisted Arden Samuel in obtaining an $850,000 life insurance policy and was paying for it, which Arden Samuel thought was a precondition for his obtaining financing for his company from Oracle. Charles made his son Grant the beneficiary of the life insurance policy on Samuel's life. So I'm just going to give the money to my son if my business partner dies. So my son will have the money. Got it. Right. This all sounds like something the Sopranos would be doing. It really does sound like... But he's like, just like a one-man man doing all these scams. Right. In October 2003, Charles told Arden the deal with Oracle was going to go through. Charles said that Arden would be getting an advance from Oracle. Samuel told friends that he was going to take a trip to Brazil with the cash. He said he was buying a Porsche and a condo and was in the process of setting up an office with staff. So he thinks his life's about to take off. There was no such deal with Oracle. Yeah. A month later, on November 5th, 2003, Arden Samuel's mutilated body was found in Quilchina Park off 33rd Avenue in Vancouver, just a few blocks west of busy Granville Street. Samuel was laying face down and had been partially covered with leaves. Investigators found that Arden's penis had been sliced off and shoved down his pants. In his pockets, along with his wallet and an identification, were vile and racist notes claiming that Arden had been murdered in a hate crime. An autopsy found that Mr. Samuel had been strangled to death with a ligature of some sort. Yuck. Oh, my God. Eight days after Arden's death, police brought Charles Kembo in for questioning regarding possible involvement in the other man's death. Or maybe he knew something. The police, quote, confronted him with cell phone and cell site records indicating close contact between the two on the night it was believed that Arden Samuel was killed. End quote. Charles Kembo denied everything. 
He claimed he would not hurt a fly, especially Arden Samuel. He was his best friend, after all. So I, I know that this is a true crime podcast. I know you told me he's a serial killer, but even I didn't expect. I was just still kind of stuck in all the financial scams. I didn't think he'd go to this. Well, somebody else is already missing, too. Yeah. But there's so many things happening. I'm just like, there's a wait, lot. I didn't see that. And this is why this episode was hard for me to put together. I was yeah. up very late putting it together. I know. Charles tried to collect on Arden's life insurance policy, but he was unable as the murder was yet to be solved. And the fact that Charles Kembo was a person of interest in the case cannot have been lost on the insurance investigators. Yes, his son desperately needs the money. His infant son desperately needs $850,000. Immediately. This is horrible. From court documents. As with Margaret, Mr. Kembo continued to use Arden Samuel's name in the directorship of the companies he set up, as well as for an online trading account. This is after the man is dead. Oh. Mr. Kembo had a BCID card with Arden Samuel's name, but Mr. Kembo's picture. He used it as early as 1998 to rent an apartment in Arden Samuel's name and continued to use it after his death. So he can be Arden Samuel whenever he wants to be. Wow. And we will take a break right here. Good, I need one. I just can't believe all this. It's so complicated, so much stuff. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. And we're back. And so you've already said that it's pretty complicated and (laughs) confusing, but that's because we have a master manipulator telling artful lies all over the place, and he he is connected to at least one disappearance and one murder. Yep. Okay. Right? Mm-hmm. So what are your thoughts on this guy so Well, far? I still, I know there's still time left, but I'm still just like, really? Did he really cross into, I know he was like super predator financial guy, but I just didn't really like the murder part. Uh, I know more will be revealed. So the next to die was Su Yin Ma, a 55-year-old Asian woman. At the time of her death, she was living in a seniors living in seniors housing, paying $204 a month in rent and working at her brother's food processing plant. Like Margaret Kembo, she met Charles Kembo by chance while they were living in the same apartment building. According to court documents, quote, their relationship started out as a friendship and business relationship when she supplied shrimp chips to Mr. Kembo's convenience store, but at some point their relationship turned sexual, end quote. I don't know whether to laugh at that or not. He's luring people in. I know, but doing. I'm stuck on shrimp chips. <laughs> I know. I was wondering if that would be funny. <laughs> it's, none of this is funny. I don't know what to do. I it's know. complicated. No, shrimp, shrimp chips are, <laughs> they are, are, they are yummy. Matt, she enticed him with her shrimp chips. Yeah. Sticking with his M.O., Charles Kembo weaseled his way into Ms. Ma's life with promises of love and security. 
Kembo incorporated a company for her, Golden Leaf Trading, for which she opened up four bank accounts and attempted to open up a fifth. Mr. Kembo used Ms. Ma's name in the directorship of some of the companies he had set up. He also set up an email account in her name to intercept correspondence pretending to be her. Ah, okay. He's a champ at uh, filling out forms, apparently. He could get anyone to give him an account for any reason. Perhaps, I guess so. In September 2004, Ms. Ma bought a cell phone in her name and gave it to Charles Kembo to use to call her. So this, it sounds like he does the same things with people. He just wants their identity. And he knows he has to work to get it. Yeah. He's still living with Jean-Viev Camara at this point oh, as Oh, right. Well. I forgot about her. Right? Exactly. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Shortly before she died, Ms. Ma quit her job telling her brother and others she had a new job as a driver for a family. She gave notice at her apartment and tried to give her furniture away, saying she did not need the money. A note was found in her apartment suggesting she had thought about marrying a black man, but she did not give a name. What? She just wrote that in a journal or something? Yep. Okay. The last day Ms. Ma's phone was used was the last day she was seen alive. From court documents, Ms. Ma was murdered approximately October 22, 2004. Her death was attributed to asphyxiation, most likely death by drowning. Her body was found on November 5, 2004, immersed in water in a Steveston slough off the south arm of the Fraser River in an Easton hockey bag tied with a quarter-inch blue-and-white poly rope to a nearby tree. Steveston is not far from where we live. No. It's just we go there all the time. And you will know exactly where this happened by the next little bit. From a later article in the province newspaper, Jesse Vetra and his co-worker Don Pellich had finished work early on November 5th, 2004. They were having lunch in the park off Rice Mill Road in South Richmond when they noticed a tree that had been apparently felled by a beaver. And so the two men decided to investigate and see if they could locate the beavers. And this is when Pellich found a hockey bag in the slough. After skidding down the embankment, the two men reefed on the hockey bag trying to extract it from the water, but it was too heavy. One of the men cut the bag open and they were shocked to see a sweater-covered arm inside the bag. They left their discovery where they had found it and made their way to a weigh scale just off the highway on the south side of the George Massey Tunnel. So every time we go into Richmond, yeah, through George Massey Tunnel, yep, we I know exactly that. where that is, yep. that weigh-in station. From there, they called police to report what they had found. So that's pretty creepy. That's yuck, yeah. There was no identification with the body, and she had bare feet, sweatpants, no underwear, and her shirt was on backwards. After she was identified, the coat she would have worn on October was found hanging in her apartment. Ms. Ma's bed was unmade, and food was on the table and stove. So it appeared that things happened quickly. Mm-hmm. A male's DNA was found on a bottle of KY jelly on her bedside table. I guess that explains the clothes and stuff. Yeah. Mm. From court documents, quote, Following her death, false GST refund checks supplied by Mr. Kembo flooded the Golden Leaf trading bank accounts. He used Ms. Ma's two existing credit cards and applied for two credit cards in her name over the Internet. He gave her car away to a friend, a man named Mike Hozuri, a week after she had gone missing. After Ms. Ma went missing, Mr. Kembo claimed she went to Hong Kong to visit her sick mother. 
He paid her rent for November and December 2004 using the false identity yep. stuff that he had set up for her. So it didn't look like he was paying it. No. It was being paid through mm-hmm. those accounts. Yep. Someone entered the apartment at some point and removed a note left by Ms. Ma's brother, probably Kembo. Later, police set up video surveillance but did not capture anyone entering the apartment. After her death, the police seized two credit cards that Mr. Kembo had applied for on the internet, which had been sent to her address. So again, he's applying for more credit cards to rack up more debt in the name of this person who's yeah. now dead. Yeah, they know for sure, but there's he still knows there's a window of time to just grab some more credit, money, whatever. Yep. If he would have sent it to himself, the police wouldn't have been able to intercept it because they weren't sure what he was yeah, doing. Yeah, what's yet. going on there. Police suspected Kembo right away in her disappearance because there were now three suspicious incidents that had happened in his orbit. When questioned by police, Kembo denied knowing uh, Ms. Ma at all and, of course, denied knowledge of her murder. Cops began to pay closer attention to him and began to uncover some of the cons that he was running. Those poor police, because this guy had just had so much going on yeah. that uh, to keep track of it all, it's brutal. Yeah, there's a lot to untangle here. Yeah. In the spring of 2005, police were granted a warrant to place wiretaps in places where Kembo was believed to speak openly. From an October 2009 article by province staff reporter Keith Frazier, quote, In one wiretap in the Surrey home of Kembo and his then-common-law wife, Jean-Vieve Camara, Again, there she is. Kembo and a friend, Mike Hozuri, are heard several times replaying a news report that for the first time identifies Ms. Ma as the victim of a November 2004 slaying. So this is months later. Mm -hmm. She isn't identified for months. Oh, okay. Yeah, there's no ID, all that stuff, yeah. The two men chat about Ma with Kembo indicating that he knew details of the victim, including that she had a number of brothers. A day later... RCMP approached Mike Huzuri and asked him to have Kembo call them. Huzuri did as he was asked, and Kembo called the RCMP on June 29, 2005. Unaware of the wiretaps that had already recorded the truth, Kembo again denied knowing Su Yin Ma, and denied knowing her again in a subsequent follow-up call on July 6, 2005. Cops were now sure that Kembo was lying and began plans to further gather evidence as Kembo was now suspect number one in the 55-year-old woman's murder. Nice. But one more person was about to die. No. Okay. By this time, Rita Jung, Margaret Kembo's daughter, Charles' stepdaughter, was 21 years old. From court documents, Charles assisted Rita by paying her rent and schooling. Just before her death, she was planning a trip to Hong Kong to visit cousins and find out about her mother's whereabouts. Margaret is still missing. Yes, she's in the monastery. Right. In July 2005, Rita Jung set up two bank accounts at Charles Kembo's request. He told her to get as many checks as she could. Her new bank card and PIN were sent to one of Mr. Kembo's mailbox addresses. So he learned from the last when the credit cards were intercepted by the police. Mm-hmm. Mr. Kembo told Rita that he would deposit a large check in her bank account for her trip to Hong Kong and he would give her seed capital and teach her how to day trade. Oh, day trade. I remember those days. 
Mr. Kembo told her that he was contacting a travel agent to arrange for her ticket when, in reality, he was calling an automated helpline for Canada Revenue Agency. So he's pretending he's setting her up for success in this trip to go find her mom. Yeah. I will help you. Mm-hmm. He's going to any length. It sounds like Casey Anthony leading the police into the Disney place and, and yeah, I don't really work here. Yeah. But I'm on the phone with the travel agent when he's actually just listening to a robot. Yeah, exactly. In the week leading up to Rita's death, both Mr. Kembo and Jean-Vievre Camara stopped calling Rita from their cell phones and started calling from pay phones. Yep. Before and after Rita's death, Mr. Kembo arranged for false GST checks and Canada student loan checks in Rita's name. Yeah, end quote. That whole cycle starting again. He's getting his the next new kind of wave of checks. Yep. According to a CBC News article, quote, the police were tapping the suspect's home, had audio surveillance in his apartment, and also GPS tracking device and an audio bug in his vehicle. Oh, wow. They had it all decked out. From court documents, quote, on July 23, 2005, police recorded Kembo and Rita Jung discussing her imminent trip to Hong Kong. Charles and Rita went to a hardware store where he bought a shovel, rope, garbage bags, cotton gloves, and Drano. Charles proceeded to drive around with Rita for nine hours, late into the night. He stopped the car in a parking lot in an industrial area on one side of the Fraser River and later near Grower Road at the airport on the other side of the river. The police intercept recorded at this time what listeners thought was a scream. They had overheard Rita Jung's murder. Oh no, they're too late. The quote continues. The body of Ms. Jung was found three days later at this area near Grower Road. The body wrapped in garbage bags had been partially submerged at high tide. There appeared to be chemical burns on the face and shoulder. A shovel found nearby on the river bottom had a barcode on it demonstrating it to be the one that Charles Kembo had purchased at the store. An autopsy revealed the cause of death of Ms. Jung to be non-ligature strangulation. The Crown argued that this evidence demonstrated that, so it looked like Charles Kembo had murdered Rita Jung and disposed of her body at this location. Is that what the Drano was for? Yeah. When it says the burns to her face? Kembo was arrested days later and charged with Rita's murder. The three other murder charges followed. The evidence was piling up against Charles Kembo. Pathologists discovered Kembo's semen inside Rita's vagina. Kembo claimed that he had an, quote, incestuous relationship with Rita, his stepdaughter, since she was 18, sometime after Margaret Kembo's disappearance. Yuck. It was also Kembo's DNA on the KY jelly bottle in Suyin Ma's house. The cell phone Ms. Ma had bought him and Ms. Ma's own cell phone were seized from Mr. Kembo's storage locker after his arrest. So again, he had learned from the time when he had allowed Mr. Arden Samuel's phone mm-hmm. to remain with him. Yeah, not to repeat that mistake Not to repeat again. that mistake. So this guy was learning as he went along. Yeah. An identical hockey bag to the one Ms. Ma was later found in and rope had been purchased at Canadian Tire by Kembo on the day after it is alleged that Ms. Ma was murdered. This is the same Canadian tire store where he had purchased a coho hockey bag 
on December 23, 2002, days before Margaret Kembo was last seen. As that hockey bag nor Margaret's body have ever been found, it is not a stretch to infer that they are together somewhere. Yeah. Jean-Vive Camara later testified that she remembered purchasing an Easton hockey bag with Mr. Kembo, although she failed to identify the bag that held Ms. Ma's body. Kembo admitted to a lot of things, but stopped short of confessing to murder. Mr. Kembo owned up to raiding Ms. Ma's bank accounts, but denies attempting to cash GST checks, so he was very selective about what he... So weird. Didn't do the GST checks. He claimed he did it with Ms. Ma's knowledge and consent in order to pay his outstanding invoice for drafting a business plan for gold leaf trading. Kembo told so many lies that he had a hard time with facts. For example, he couldn't remember his own son's birthday. (laughs) You know, your head is filled with so much untruth, the truth is not even a thing anymore. Yeah, the priorities are definitely set there. The months-long murder... The months-long quadruple murder trial began on October 13, 2009, and the Crown was ready. From court documents, the Crown held that Kembo's primary motive to murder each victim was financial. Because each victim offered different possibilities for financial exploitation and benefit to Mr. Kembo, the operation of the scheme differed slightly in the details, but not in its overall intent. The fact that all four victims were low net worth individuals was part of the system as it allowed Mr. Kembo to fly below the radar and say to police, as he did when he was arrested in July 2005, why would anyone kill that person? He slash she has nothing to offer anyone. The position of the Crown was that this specific system renders objectively improbable any innocent explanation for... These things. The fact that Kembo was the last known person believed to be with each victim. His possession of Margaret Kembo and Su Yin Ma's cell phones. The evidence of Arden Samuels and Su Yin Ma's communication via telephone with him after the victim was last seen by anyone else. The presence of voluminous personal identification of Margaret Kembo in his storage locker. The fact that all four victims allowed or ended up having their mail delivered to mailbox addresses controlled by Charles Kembo. His possession and use of personal identification of all four victims, including banking information, banking documents, credit cards, bank cards, and in the instance of Arden Samuel, a life insurance policy delivered to a mailbox controlled by Charles Kembo. The presence of Reedy Young's personal identification at his residence, turned over by Jean-Vive Camara to the police, his possession of a piece of paper at his arrest in writing with R.Y. Plan written on it, Rita Jung. His possession of, in his daytimer, of another note in his handwriting with R.Y. Strategy written on it. The fact that he called Rita Jung from a payphone in the week preceding her murder and asked Jean-Vive Camara to do the same. Evidence that he got or attempted to get all four victims to open bank accounts with their weather... Uh, whether corporate or personal. Evidence that he got Margaret Kembo and Su Yin Ma to incorporate companies and his use of Arden Samuel's name for that purpose, which are companies that he used to benefit himself financially. That all four victims had their identities and assets appropriated in a remarkably similar manner, both before their murders, in the case of Margaret and Arden Samuel, and after their murders for all four victims. And the fact that all the victims believed they were going on a trip 
Margaret Kembo was going to Brunei or somewhere in Asia. Arden Samuel believed he was going to Brazil. Rita Jung believed she was going to Hong Kong. And Mr. Kembo said that Suyin Ma was planning a trip to Hong Kong as well. Yep. Kembo's defense team asserted that the murders of Suyin Ma and Rita Jung were committed by a known gang of criminals in the course of extortion attempts aimed at Charles Kembo. Kembo even claimed there was a kidnapping at one point. Oh. Arden Samuel had been killed by racists. And of course, according to Kembo, Margaret was not even dead. She was in Asia somewhere. Yeah, he's still telling it. Kembo didn't do himself any favors choosing to testify in his own defense. His demeanor, his demeanor was combative, arrogant, and glib. He sparred with the Crown Prosecutor over a number of minor details. That and the evidence and testimony given by his common-law wife, Jean-Viev Kamara, is what sunk him. Okay, finally. From a CBC News article, a B.C. Supreme Court jury found Charles Kembo guilty of four counts of first-degree murder for a series of killings committed between 2002 and 2005. Kembo was given an automatic life sentence in prison with no parole for 25 years, although B.C. Supreme Court Judge Sonny Stromberg-Stein told him that she would have imposed a harsher sentence if she could. Stromberg-Stein read a scathing assessment of the man, denouncing him as a greedy, selfish, and corrupt criminal who preyed on the people who trusted him most. You are a predator. You preyed on innocent, vulnerable people, including those closest to you, exploiting those who made the mistake of trusting you when you stood to benefit financially from their deaths. Stromberg-Stein told Kembo, who sat in the prisoner's box in a black fleece jacket, at times appearing to be grinning. So rude. You're a serial killer, a very dangerous man. The public deserves protection from you. You should never be permitted to walk the streets a free man. End quote. Yeah. As with many of our cases, though, Charles Kembo's story does not end with his conviction. The world was shocked to find out that he is also a children's author and had a book for sale on Amazon. From Jezebel.com, the book titled, quote, The Trinity of Super Kids, Quest for Water, a story of, in his words, quote, teenaged, age, teenaged heroes gifted with a variety of exotic superpowers which they use to inspire, raise awareness, and vanquish water waste and pollution in a fun, fast-paced adventure. The book has sold impressively well, with all proceeds apparently going to the World Food Program. Along with it, Kemp apparently going to the World Food Program. Got it. Along with it, Kembo created the identity of Bauer, a female author who has a Facebook page and even gave interviews. In one interview with Sweet 101, Bauer, Kembo, said she was born in Canada but lives elsewhere in the United States and that, depending on the time of year, I have lived on three continents. Extra creepily, she says she, quote, prefers to write in semi-darkness alone in the nude. And her explanation of her book's message is pretty disturbing coming from a convicted murderer. Quote, to rob a person of their gold is theft, but to rob them of hope is murder. Doing nothing about water waste and pollution is the same as robbing those yet unborn of hope. Survival, somebody would say genocide, end quote. What on, what did you just read? I don't even, (laughs) 
I get what you're saying and I get who wrote it, but that, what? Creepy stuff, right? It's so... So oh. new copies of the book are no longer for sale on Amazon because people kicked up a stink. But you can get a copy of the book from resellers if you really want it. Hard pass. Hard pass on that. And that's it for this week's tale. So what do you think of Charles Eli Kembo, Carol? <laughs> oh my Your God. Your new boyfriend? No. Okay, so the thing is, when I think of serial killers, I think of someone that um, kind of has his family safe at home and then he sneaks out and then he kills strangers that or, or fit something. Yeah. 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 But then he comes home and then he's like, nobody, everybody says, oh, I wouldn't expect that from him. This guy's the opposite of that. You're in danger if you know him. Yes. That's the part that it was just like, oh my God. Yeah, that's what makes him so crazy. And even in the beginning with all the financial stuff, I was kind of willing to give him a pass kind of in a way but then yeah then he just went right off the uh kind of crossed the line right there and then went like a hundred percent into full super predator mode right that's frightening whole different kind of serial killer oh man so i guess it's time for voicemails hopefully we have a couple this week let's check let's see if people actually want to talk to us if it's Mr. Kimbo, we will not take the message. We're, Mr. Kimbo, we are not here. Paging Mr. Kimbo? Well, Mr. Kimbo's in the clink. Which one? I don't know. Yeah. Because in Canada, you don't. it's not as easy to find out as the States. In, in the States, you can just kind of uh, put a prisoner's name into a database and find out, but it's not so easy here. Maybe. I think he's in the shoe. I'm just going to say I that. doubt he's in... You don't think he's in the shoe? No, he's, he's not. That's the only jail I know besides Alouette Women's Prison. But I'm wondering if he's setting people up for death in prison for like Well, you can candy. still do... <laughs> well, I mean, what's the what's the currency in there, right? Yeah, he's also just like really good at sending out forms and all that other stuff. He has access to the internet. Who knows? Mm-hmm. Uh, let's check this one out. It looks like it comes to us from Alberta. All right. Hi, Mike, and hi, Carol. Um, it's Alex calling, and um, I'm a true crime addict from Edmonton, Alberta. Yes, I know, I know. Um, anyways, I just finished listening to the episode on Doctor from Dr. Sleesberger. Crazy case. Um, anyways, I just wanted to let you guys know I really enjoy your show. Um, me and my dog, Bunky, it's become part of our routine every Monday morning is to listen to some dark poutine. It's nice to have some Canadian content. And I love, and also my dog loves, the sound of the loons. So you guys take care, stay safe, and uh, looking forward to some more Canadian content. Okay, take care. Wow, that was great. Thank you, Alex. Yay, thank you. And Bunky listens too. And likes I love you, Bunky. Carol loves all dogs, cats, uh, lizards even. <laughs> well, I don't know. I haven't really loved lizards, but Bunky, I know. Yeah. Yeah, well, Bunky. Have Good you puppy. seen pictures of Bunky? Not yet. I'm going to look it up though. Okay. <laughs> oh my. But yeah, thanks, Alex. That's great. Um, I wonder if we can add other things that will twig animals in our show because that would be really funny. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Just make them just start howling Why or look around. Oh, dark yeah. routine. 
Oh, but then don't because then it could turn into like the doorbell situation where they just start barking like crazy. We won't put doorbells in. How's that? We won't use doorbells. Okay, I'm just going to save the show. Let's listen to another one. Hey, guys. Uh, my name's Karis. I'm from Bradford, Ontario. Um, I was just calling because I really admire your podcast. Uh, initially, when you just said right now uh, to say something naughty, I thought uh, you were going in a different direction. But anyways, yeah, I'm a really big fan of the podcast. really enjoy what you guys are doing and, like, how you guys have, like, a personal element to it, talking about, you know, just how, like, you would feel in those situations. I think it's really nice to hear. Anyways, um, I think that maybe you guys should do an episode on Sonia Barishan from Orangeville. She was recently murdered. Not recently. Like she was murdered 10 years ago. Um, she was, like, a nurse at my summer camp, and her, like, case has never been solved. And I think it would be really interesting if you brought more attention to a lady who did so much good for so many young children. Okay. Well, thanks, guys. Hope to hear another episode soon. Goodbye. Well, thanks, Kara. That is one of those ones that I have on our list, actually. Your list. Yeah. I've not seen the list. It's a large list. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> hmm. Okay. Uh, okay, that's it for voicemails. All uh, right. You can leave us one at one 327 5786 or 1-877-DARKPTN. If your call stands out, you might hear it on the show. Uh, so there you go. Uh, I guess it's time for Patreon. All right, let's do it. Let's do it. Uh, first up, we have Jody Lynn Umansky. Jody Lynn. And where's she from? Charlotte, North Carolina, it would seem. Very nice. Isn't that where Dexter's from? Oh, yeah. Isn't that interesting? <laughs> oh, Michael C. Hall is Yes, Michael there. C. Hall. Sorry. He's not Dexter. He's not actually Dexter. Wait, I, what? I He's see just him an more, actor? I see him more as David from oh, Six I Feet Under. Oh, I love Six Feet Under so much. But, uh, so what does Jody Umansky do in Charlotte, North Carolina? She actually is a day trader. Really? I know. She's a successful one. Wow. I Hopefully know. Hopefully Charles Kembo have not, has not set her up. In, no. In no, 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 no. She's safe. She doesn't know him. Well, there you go. There you go. Not in the general proximity. So she's doing well day trading still since like into the two. She started early on 2000s and she's still bringing it home. Awesome. So it looks like you're going to need your hat for uh, your place hat. So you need, you're going to need to determine where somebody is from. Mm -hmm. Our next patron is Carrie Hillis. And where's Carrie from? She's from La Paz in Bolivia. La Paz in yes. Bolivia. And what does she do in Bolivia? I hope she's not like a cocaine farmer. No, she's like a bull rider. She rides bulls. That's it. That You know what that sounds like? A load of bullshit. <laughs> no. It's not. It's real. Hey, she's the first lady bull rider in of uh, La Paz. In La Paz, Bolivia? Yeah. You say La Paz. I say La Paz. La Paz? Yes. She'll tell us how to say it properly. That's where she's from. Are you going to call me a La Spaz? <laughs> Don't have a La Spaz, Mike. <laughs> Don't have a La Spaz? She's from La Paz. La Paz. <laughs> oh, boy. But, uh, yeah, um, interesting. So she's a lady bull rider. Um, how long has she been doing that? Uh, five years. Five years? Five years. 
I know. She just kind of started on a whim then ended up really loving it. And now she's on the road. Oh. But it's just kind of, I don't think they're doing bull riding. They can't. She actually does do bull riding still. There's just no audiences. It's all virtual audiences. There you go. Mm-hmm. So here's one. We had a, a bit of an email money transfer from somebody named Olivia Graham. Oh, Olivia. And thank she says, you. happy giving Tuesday. Where is Olivia oh, from? Oh, one moment. Let me just check here. Checking my Rolodex. Sarajevo. Sarajevo? Mm-hmm, Bosnia. Oh, does she know our friend Dino? She might know Dino. Oh, wow, Dino. Mike, Mike, let me tell you <laughs> something, Mike. Um, and what does what does she do in Sarajevo? She's a tour guide. She's a tour guide. Mm-hmm. She gives the best tours there. The best tours, mm-hmm. as opposed to not tours. so good tours. Yeah, it's, it's opposed to the mediocre tours. She what gives a, the best tours. Oh, there you go. And also good coffees. She takes you to the coffee shop tour guide. Oh. Can you imagine after four hours, you're just buzzing. Everybody loves her. She's the best. Right? Mm-hmm. Well, there you go. <laughs> that sounds like fun, actually. It is. I'm in. <laughs> book well, me. Bo- book me. As soon as it's open, once the borders are open, we're coming out for the coffee tour. Next, we have Marilee Owens from Goldaming in from Surrey in the UK. Oh, I thought she was just down the street. No, you know where? You know why I know that name? Because she's my dark poutine card swap partner. Oh, hey, yeah. cool! Yeah, that's really cool. So, yes, Marilee, you have uh, a card on the way hopefully you've got it i don't know i didn't add tracking to it but uh we just put a lot of mail on it we like put we put a lot, a lot of, of postage postage on it yeah. so yes Marilee, your card's on the way and thank you for becoming a patron what does Marilee owens do in the other surrey which is probably a little bit nicer surrey than this surrey could be nicer um she actually is the, um, she takes her job very seriously. She's the janitor for all the churches in the whole in the whole town of Surrey. Like is Eleanor Rigby. Yes. Sure, it's a very noble. It is very noble. She makes sure it's all clean and ready. All the floors are shiny clean. Sparkly. Yes. Mm-hmm. So people can stand up, sit down, and sing hymns. I guess, if it's yeah. a Catholic church. Well, I, I think they do that in the Anglican church, too. Do they? I don't know. I can't remember. My boarding <laughs> school was Anglican. Did we do a lot of standing up and sitting down? I think you did some kneeling. No, we didn't do that too often. No. No, I think go. that's Catholic church. Anyway, she it doesn't. Uh, she supports all churches. She scrubs them all clean equally. There you go. Mm-hmm. Next, we have Jen Samilla, and she is from Richmond, British Columbia, oh. Canada. Oh, my gosh. We talked about Richmond today. I was today. just going to say, that's the Kimbo neighborhood. Be careful. Yeah. Well, uh, Jen, I'm sure, is very careful. Yeah. But what does Jen do in Richmond, B.C.? She works at the Daiso. She She's so lucky. The, oh. She works at Aberdeen Mall. Wow. She can go have Beard Papa anytime she wants and goes to that fancy candy shop there. Yeah. With the Japanese candies. I love Daiso. Oh my God, I miss Daiso. And I love how they decorate it for Christmas. Right? Yeah, it's really fun. And Chinese New Year. Oh my gosh. Uh, yeah, Chinese New Year is fun. Oh man. Aberdeen Mo- Mooncakes. Yeah. Next up we have Sarah Zartalomna. And where is Sarah Zartalomna from? Tripoli. 
Tripoli. In Libya. Oh, wow. I know. It's very hot. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if I have, have any desire to go to Libya after watching what happened to Muammar Gaddafi there. Yeah. It's, um, let's just give a little more time. Yeah. Some, it might, uh, yep. yeah, kind of calm Think, down. Things, things do tend to get improve nicer. over time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. So what does uh, Sarah do there? She works in the airport. She works at the Libya. She's the, the customs person. Oh, yep. very good. Mm-hmm. And so. has she ever found any people smuggling anything or anything like that? Or Jewels. Jewels? Mm-hmm. What kind of jewels? Emeralds, mostly. <laughs> wow. Maybe some diamonds, but mostly emeralds. Emeralds. So mm-hmm. there's a big uh, black market for emeralds in Libya, apparently. There you go. She oh. busted that heist wide open. <laughs> customs. As happens. <laughs> <laughs> by the customs agent. Next up, we have Anthony Carpen. Oh. Next, we have Anthony Carpanetti. And where is Anthony from? He's from Lucasa, Zambia. Well, he that sounds like an Italian last name, though. So why is he in uh, Zambia? Which his parents we actually, moved there for work. We mentioned Zambia in this episode, too. Yeah, his parents moved there for work. Okay. And what does he do? In Zambia. He's the hippo trainer. He trains hippos. Yes. What do they what does he train hippos to do? Stand on their hind legs. Why? Is there some For entertainment? Okay. So it's an <laughs> so he's dangerous trained... business. Hippos are really dangerous. Yeah, they got big teeth and mouths. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Well lion taming already done. So he's trying to open a whole new field. Yeah. But he's humane and he's kind. Does he get them to jump through hoops? Really, yes, really big, hoops. really huge hoops, and yeah. they just kind of go over. Do they and wear tutus? <laughs> yes, it's like Animal Crossing. What can I say? Yeah, yeah, it's amazing. Everything there's friendly and happy, and everyone gets along. Well, hopefully everybody. He's gets found along. a family of happy, friendly hippos. There, there are not enough of those. I don't think. No, in the world. yeah, they're not rogue hippos. They're kind of somehow domesticated a little bit. They're domesticated hippos. Yeah, mm, just a little bit. Like the house hippos here in Canada. Yes, exactly. Those tiny ones. They're domesticated. Right. Um, they're yeah. They are very tiny. I I have never seen one, which is sad. I know. I've always wanted to see. And a we've house lived hippo. in Canada for so long, and have never seen a tiny house hippo. No, it's very sad. So let's move on. Next up, uh, we're going to do some PayPal. More money being sent. People are so kind. My gosh. Uh, Gordon Bird Mm -hmm. seems to have sent two PayPal donations. So thank you so much, Gordon. We really appreciate that. Where's Gordon from? Please hold. Yemen. He's oh, he, from Sana. He's from Sana in Yemen. Yes. Yemen is is really not a good place to be right <laughs> now. So we're hoping hoping that Gordon Bird is staying safe. I hope he's safe. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, what does Gordon do other than duck in he's, Yemen right now? He's also snorkels in the Gulf of Aden. Oh, that's nice. It is. It's nice. You've done that? No. No. Not snorkeled there. I've snorkeled in the Red Sea, but he's in the he's down below in the Gulf of Aden. Oh, there you go. Yeah. I don't know the geography. He takes of that. photos and stuff. Oh, cool. Yeah. I don't really know the geography of that area, but it's Me fun. neither. <laughs> I'm cheating. I've got a map. James Balfour is our next 
donut money donor. Wait a minute. Do I know James Balfour? I bet we probably do. Probably Maybe. from the Yumber Yard. That name, he's from Regina. Maybe I don't know him. You know what Regina is? Rhymes with fun. <laughs> Can you say that? I just I'm did. sure I'm sure I almost said the wrong word. I'm sure Regina's tired of these comments. Well just because their name happens to rhyme with well, Lady. You know where Lepart. I heard I heard that from somebody from Regina. From so. a Reginian? Okay. <laughs> I could say that. Well, what does James do in Regina? He's a Zamboni driver. Of course. He comes he is. from the long lineup. He's like the it's the long line of family that do that uh, takes care of all the skating rinks indoor and outdoor. Well, there you go. Mhm. That's nice. Yeah. Thank you so much, James. James, thank you for your service. <laughs> Next we have Michael Cormier and he is from Havelock, New Brunswick. Nouveau Brunswick. Oh, there you go. Uh the speaks French? Well, I don't. I don't know if he does. Michael Cormier. Cormier might be an indicator that he is uh, by belong. Mm-hmm. You know, could be, but I know someone with that last name, and he doesn't speak French. So, well, there you go. Yeah, but uh, so, I was thinking more New Brunswick. They speak French there, right? Because yeah. yes, got it. That's where he's from. That's <laughs> okay. I've just tripped over, I don't know how many things. You just tripped over yourself. <laughs> exactly. Whoa. It's okay. And fell down the stairs. So what does Michael do in Havelock, New Brunswick? He, um, he's a painter. Oh, like a house painter or is he an artist? An artist painter. Oh, wow. And so does he like landscapes? Does he like portraits? He likes landscapes the best. You nodded at me. Yeah. And, and nodding... <laughs> I guess that doesn't translate well. No. So he is a landscape artist, mm -hmm. and he loves Bob Ross. Bob Ross. Yes, he's going he like to make his own. like to put a little tree over here? A little tree over here. A happy little tree. Yes, exactly. And he's going to have his own oh, wow. show. Wow. Yes. So the Michael Cormier, paint with Michael Cormier. Yes. Well, there you go. Big tribute, homage, Bob Ross. And he'll whisper when he paints as well. Well, I think you have to whisper. There should be an ASMR. <laughs> but he also, he adds a little modern twist to it, okay. to his painting. So he does a landscape and then he puts a spaceship somewhere or he puts an alien somewhere. A creepy little spaceship over here. And then he puts a baby Yoda over here. And I'm putting a little baby Yoda. I think everybody's pressed stop now. Stop not, whispering. Yes. <laughs> Carol loves it when I whisper. Oh no. Hello. Please stop. <laughs> anyway. Uh, that's it for our donut money donors and our patrons. Oh my gosh. Thank you all to anybody who has donated to the show, past, present, and future, for your help to keep us doing what we do. If you want to keep Dark Poutine going, you can become a patron at patreon.com slash darkpoutine. For a one-time donation, you can send us donut money via PayPal at our email address, darkpoutinepodcast at gmail.com. If you don't already subscribe to the show, it would mean a lot to us if you did. You can easily find us on iTunes, Podcast, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spotify, or wherever you get your on-demand audio. Check out our website, darkpoutine.com, for show notes and other cool stuff. Please take the time to give Dark Poutine a like or follow on Facebook and Instagram. It'd be awesome if you joined the Yumber Yard. We're getting close to 10,000 members what? in there. Oh my gosh, my admin duties. <laughs> Most importantly... Thank you for listening and tell your friends about us. Word of mouth is a powerful thing. Until we return, don't forget to be a good egg and not a bad apple. Bye. Goodbye.
Goodbye. Goodbye. Goodbye. Goodbye, our friends. Thank you.